This is AWLS, Podcasts on Wilderness Medicine, from the University of Utah School of Medicine. My name is Jennifer Ray, and I'm here with J.D. Storn and Nicholas Weinberg of the Emergency Medicine Department at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. So today we'll be discussing ultrasound in wilderness and austere settings. So Dr. Weinberg and Dr. Storn, uh, do you want to briefly describe your experience with ultrasound before we dive into it? Yeah, sure. Uh, so this is Nick Weinberg. Yes, thanks, Jen, for the intro. So um, I am an attending physician at Dartmouth, and I, I help run our wilderness medicine programs and ultrasound programs, uh, and we have a fellowship in both. Uh, uh, so I have had a long interest in wilderness medicine and worked as an expedition physician and a mountain physician uh, for many years uh, before uh, going back uh, to school, so to speak, and doing an ultrasound fellowship. Um, so I've kind of combined interest in wilderness medicine and ultrasound, specifically with an application of ultrasound in austere and wilderness settings. Um, so that's kind of my, my background. Um, so this is JD. My name is JD Storn. I'm the current wilderness and austere medicine here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Uh, so I'm a little bit more limited on the ultrasound. I was a search and rescue paramedic prior to medical school, so have a have had a fairly long interest in wilderness medicine, um, but was kind of introduced to ultrasound throughout medical school, and then as it's developed and seen the different ways that it can interact with wilderness medicine and rescue medicine, um, have just been gotten more interested in it in the last couple of years. So let's start by talking a bit about ultrasound in general which has come a long way in recent years. And for our listeners who are less familiar with ultrasound, uh, could you tell us a bit about how it works and how it has evolved over time? Yeah, I guess I can take that one. Um, so I, I'll, I guess I'll assume most of our listeners have some basic understanding of ultrasound. Um, you know, too much uh, about this, I think, is, is, is beyond the scope of, of this talk, but I'll just a little bit basic information. So basically it uses sound waves to create uh, a two-dimensional image uh, of soft tissue in the body. Uh, and one important feature is that it uses non-ionizing radiation. So unlike x-rays or CAT scans, um, it's non-ionizing non radiation. So it's generally quite a bit safer. Um, and um, <clears throat> basically it sends out a sound wave and produ produces a two-dimensional image. Um, and it's been increasingly used um, at the bedside uh, traditionally, it was used in kind of formal radiology settings with large machines. And over recent years, um, machines have become smaller and smaller. And it's been used increasingly, especially in emergency departments where we work primarily um, at the bedside to kind of guide our clinical management um, in real time. Um, and then in more recent years, it's been applied to wilderness and resource poor settings. Um, so there are basically, you know, clinics that will have, may have larger ultrasounds, um, but, but increasingly people are, are bringing smaller uh, portable handheld devices with them um, into the wilderness on expeditions um, in resource poor settings for international work, um, relief work, et cetera. Yeah, so it sounds like ultrasound from what you're saying, it sounds like it's, it's portable and it's durable. But at the same time, I'd imagine being in an austere or a wilderness setting would pose some unique challenges for 
any type of electrical device and, and ultrasound device. So would you say it's practical to bring one into, into the wilderness? Like I'm thinking of things like electricity, how do you charge the device? Um, is it, how fragile is it if you drop it or if it gets wet? How would you store the clips? And um, what do you do if there's no internet connection? Yeah, those are great questions. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more later about specific settings and applications for ultrasound in, in kind of austere areas. Um, but to answer your questions, Jen, um, yeah, those are definitely concerns. And um, yeah, so, so there's basically a lot of issues that have to be, you know, you need a power source. So, so if you have energy, if you have wall outlets, you can charge them. But in many, many austere settings, you don't have that. So there's increasing interest in solar panels to charge um, these devices. And people have studied this. There's papers and, and case reports of people using solar panels to charge uh, portable devices on expeditions, et cetera. Um, and the solar technology is definitely it significantly improved from what it used to be even just a couple of years ago. So solar is definitely an option um, for charging devices. Um, also battery, you know, batteries have improved as well. Um, but you do have to, you know, it is an issue you have to deal with in terms of cold and, and maintaining battery life. Um, and then in terms of the, the settings that people are using them, you know, they're on, if you're on an expedition, um, there's definitely gonna be potentially harsh conditions. Um, and it really depends on the device in terms of how durable it is and how waterproof it may be. And there's definitely a, a lot of variability from device uh, to device. Um, and I will say we, we have no, um, you know, conflicts of interest with any of these devices. Um, but, uh, but there's a lot of variability. Some devices have um, their own screen and then other devices use uh, like a third party um, tablet um, as the screen. So, um, you know, it is possible to get waterproof tablets and or waterproof cases for tablets. Um, so, so there's basically a lot of variability. And you basically have to kind of research which would be the best option for you based on kind of where you're going. Um, in terms of durability, uh, most of these newer portable devices are, are fairly durable. You know, if you drop the probe, it's probably not going to break. Um, but, you know, they do need to be kind of handled with care. And uh, another issue is altitude. Um, there have definitely been a lot of reports of devices that stop working um, at high altitude um, in environments. Uh, also, uh, people are using these on, on ships. I actually worked on a, a sailboat crossing the Indian Ocean, <laughs> and uh, um, I arrived on the, on the ship, and, and there was an ultrasound machine, but it was basically completely dysfunctional because of the corrosion. So salt water is another, another enemy to uh, ultrasound as well. You know, I think to add on to that, Nick, uh, yes, a lot of the, the newer handheld units that are coming out are almost as if they were purpose-built to be used in an austere setting. Uh, some of them are using silicon crystals that are more of a solid state thing that are much more durable than the piezoelectric crystals that the, the older probes use. And then just from a sheer size standpoint, many of these new devices really do fit in the palm of your hand. Uh, and so the ability to put them in you know, a container such as an otter box to keep them safe or just having them wrapped up in extra clothing uh, makes protecting them much easier than older generation stuff. Um, a lot of them are designed to be used in conjunction with Wi-Fi and a kind of telemedicine type service, um, but most of them do have options if you don't have Wi-Fi 
that they're able to store a certain amount of clips locally. Uh, so you, you can still use them even without the, the Wi-Fi connection. Um, and then as, as Nick mentioned, the, the fact that they, they loop in into your cell phone or you, you can adapt them to your cell phone just, just limits the amount of extra stuff that you'd have to carry on an expedition. Yeah, they're, they're basically every year, you know, these devices are getting smaller and smaller and, and more portable. So it's, it's probably going to continue to improve. Um, and the price, one other thing is the price point has come down significantly with some of these newer devices. Um, it used to be that, you, you know, the average individual couldn't really afford these, but now, uh, you know, for a couple thousand dollars, you can pick up a lot of these devices now. And, and in, in my experience, the imaging quality is also getting better rapidly year on year. You can now image quality with something that you can hold in your hand seems to exceed some of the, the larger ultrasounds that I started my training with in emergency medicine. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of potential for ultrasound in austere settings. And maybe what we can talk about next are the medical applications of that. And it seems like ultrasound probably when we're thinking about austere settings, there's, there's two parts to that, probably the rural clinics and then also wilderness and backcountry. So how about for right now, if we're to focus on using ultrasound um, in a wilderness or backcountry setting, what would you see um, as some of the medical applications of ultrasound? As more and more people obtain these devices, they'll discover new applications for these that maybe I'm not even thinking of yet. Um, but I, I think what I see from my experience, it, the, the two big applications are kind of on an expedition um, where, uh, you know, you have a, a pretty significant size med kit and you're going to be in a remote setting for a prolonged period of probably weeks or even months um, where you're basically the only medical provider caring for, for a decent group size group of, of people. Um, and, you know, I, I would say it would definitely behoove you to have an, an ultrasound device if you were going to be an expedition provider um, on, on a remote expedition. Um, so that's kind of one, one main application. Um, and then the other is in kind of remote clinics um, where it doesn't have to be in a wilderness setting, even just an austere setting without a lot of resources where either you don't have access to advanced imaging for financial reasons or just you're in a remote location and far from any advanced imaging. Um, that's another setting where ultrasound can be very useful um, in place of imaging modalities such as CT scan and even x-ray. Yeah, you know, I, th I think another area that you're going to see more push into ultrasound is probably in the professional rescue setting too with with search and rescue teams and mountain rescue teams, as the ultrasound becomes more the standard of care in the emergency department, I think you're going to start start to see penetration into the pre-hospital world, which is already starting. And then yeah. the next the next logical step is those groups that may not be out for an extended period of time, but have the manpower to carry a fairly significant first aid kit, um, would be would. This would be a big adjunct to their ability to, to care for patients and, and make destination decisions off of their findings. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're already seeing actually pre-hospital crews with ultrasound on their, their rigs um, and helicopters, uh, EMS services as well. Many of them have ultrasound and they're often going into wilderness settings actually, so. So one question um, going off of what you're saying could be, 
It seems like there's a lot of situations where ultrasound does have a lot of clinical value in these settings. Do you think there's any concern that if you have an ultrasound with you, do you think that might lead to maybe using it more than it's needed? Um, are there situations where it might have a little less clinical value? Yeah, I think it's worth um, bringing up a kind of tenant of ultrasound, of bedside ultrasound, which is that it tends to be very specific, um, but can be limited in terms of its sensitivity. Um, and one important point is that this, this is definitely operator dependent. Um, so, you know, someone who's been doing bedside ultrasound for years is going to probably have more higher sensitivity in obtaining, um, you know, diagnostic images for, for pathological, um, you know, processes than someone who's relatively new uh, to it. So um, it's generally pretty, pretty specific. So for example, if you um, see in inflamed enlarged appendix, um, that is very specific for appendicitis. Um, but if you don't find the appendix, then you can't diagnose appendicitis. So, um, right, oftentimes when you see pathology, you can rule it in, but you can't necessarily definitively rule it out. Um, and that's a really important point um, for really all, all skill levels, even if you're, if you're starting out and even for us who are more experienced, um, that still applies to us as well. I think yeah, just, I think, I think just to phrase that a different way, Nick, um, you know, I don't, I don't worry too much about people using it more than it's needed. I worry about people anchoring if they don't see something like, let's say you have a, a patient that had a high mechanism trauma with abdominal pain and you do an ultrasound and you don't see free fluid, that doesn't, as Nick said, that doesn't mean the patient's not bleeding. Um, and just always remember that you, you have the patient in front of you and that you're not just treating what your ultrasound. Yeah, it, it's, it's, you know, you're, you're integrating your, just like anything in medicine, you're not just looking at one, one finding and you're kind of integrating everything, creating a clinical picture so you're, you know, you're using the ultrasound as an adjunct to your history and your physical exam. You're not really going to have blood work in most of these places. Um, so you're kind of taking it, you know, integrating it with that larger picture. Um, I think the main applications for, for wilderness settings primarily is going to be with trauma. Um, so the FAST exam, for those of you who aren't familiar with that, that's basically a study look evaluating for free fluid in the in the abdomen. Um, and like JD mentioned, uh, it is, is very specific. If you see it, there's definitely fluid in the abdomen, but just because you don't see it doesn't mean that they're not bleeding. You can have less than the amount needed to, to visualize. Um, and uh, so, so uh, fast exam, also evaluating for a pneumothorax. Um, it's very, very sensitive and specific for evaluating for pneumothorax. Um, long bone fractures, the sensitivities and specificities are in the 90% range. There was one study done a few years ago. Um, and then other things, places where you may not have access to an x-ray, a chest x-ray, for example, um, it's pretty good in evaluating for pneumonia, pulmonary edema, high altitude pulmonary edema. Um, so the lung ultrasound is also very useful in austere settings without, without x-rays. In considering the clinical applications of ultrasound, I'm wondering if we can use an example to make this a little bit more tangible and to get your thoughts on a case like this. So for example, let's say you're on a climbing expedition and someone in your party falls and injures herself. 
So she's short of breath. She has a lot of pain in her shoulder. And also she has pain in her right lower abdomen and her pulse is racing. So do you think there's a use for ultrasound in this situation? And if there is, what exactly would you be looking for? And where do you think it would fit into the overall patient assessment that you would do? So I'll, I'll take a stab at, at this one. Um, I think there's a couple of points that you bring up. Uh, number one, where it fits in the overall assessment. Uh, I, think, I think of these situations a lot of the way that I do in the trauma, the trauma bay where the, the first step is always the primary survey and making sure that you have an adequate airway, that they're breathing, um, and that they have circulation and a blood pressure and, and sensation. Um, so I think once you're, once you're clear of those things and don't have anything that you immediately need to intervene upon, uh, then you can start looking at the rest of your secondary survey and the adjuncts, including the ultrasound. Um, you know, the, the two things, the two uses for ultrasound here sort of depending on the, the clinical severity of the patient. Uh, number one, the, the cases you bring it up makes me highly concerning for abdominal trauma um, in which the, the FAST exam, as Nick outlined a little bit earlier, would be my first go-to. And that, that gives you a, a good look at the, the, both the abdomen and now looking at the, the heart, make sure there's no tamponade, make sure there's no effusion around the heart and looking at the lungs, again, making sure there's no, no hemothorax or pneumothorax. You know, if any of those, if any of those things are positive, then that's very concerning for a, a surgical emergency in this patient and would really up your threshold for needing to emergently evacuate this patient. You know, in the, the scenario as you outlined it, the, the concern for right shoulder pain the, the bigger concern for me would be irritation from abdominal bleeding. Um, but if say the patient is, is stable or you're gonna be with them for some period of time, there, there is a role too for being able to ultrasound the, the MSK joints. And if, even if there's not something that you can't physically palpate, m making an attempt to rule out any fractures or dislocations that you would be able to, to reduce to help with patient comfort. Yeah, I think um, in, in terms of shoulders, you know, I, I have reduced shoulders in the field without ultrasound. So you can do these things clinically and you're still using your clinical gestalt and your clinical skills. But, you know, if you do see a dislocated shoulder, you'll just feel a lot more comfortable reducing, uh, reducing it in the field, I think. Um, and then in, in terms of one key point, I think, is is that ultrasound can help help you kind of decide whether you, if you're on the fence about something, but if someone is unstable, obviously you're gonna get them out of there as fast as you can. If say they're stable and you're not sure, do I sit on them overnight or do I really try to get them out of here soon or call a helicopter, for example. And so if you did see free fluid in the, in the abdomen, you know, that would be very concerning. And then I, you know, I'm, if the patient was stable, I, I might really expedite the, the evacuation of that patient. Whereas if they didn't have a positive fast, so no free fluid, then and they were stable and I they looked okay, you know, maybe I would sit on them. Maybe I wouldn't call in the helicopter at night or something like that. Um, so so kind of expediting your evacuation is one I think key use of of ultrasound. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it definitely sounds like there would be a good place for ultrasound there. The other thing we had touched on a little bit were the use of ultrasound in rural clinics. And Dr. Weinberg, I know you've done some work in a clinic in Nepal. 
Um, and I'm wondering if you have maybe an example or two of using ultrasound in that setting. I worked uh, at the Himalayan Rescue Association in their clinic in Farache, which is at about 14,000 feet. Um, I was there for almost four months, uh, treating climbers and trekkers and a lot of uh, local Nepali uh, residents and guides and porters as well. Um, and we had a small uh, bedside ultrasound machine um, that we, you know, we used pretty frequently. We didn't have any additional imaging. We didn't have x-rays, MRI, CT scans. And you know, the closest x-ray was a probably two week walk away or obviously a helicopter flight uh, to Kathmandu. Um, so we used ultrasound uh, quite a bit. Um, and I can kind of give two cases that, that kind of illustrate how ultrasound can be useful. Um, the first was a pretty straightforward case of a, a local porter, Nepali porter that came in with right upper quadrant pain. Um, you know, didn't have blood work. Um, all I basically had was my exam <laughs> and an ultrasound. And the patient looked okay, but was complaining of right upper quadrant pain. Uh, and I did a bedside ultrasound and looked at his gallbladder. And you know, I was, I was, I was, um, you know, skilled in, in doing this particular study. Was comfortable, kind of, uh, you know, managing patients off of my own exam. Um, and he had a total normal gallbladder with a negative sonographic Murphy sign. And you know, instead of evacuating him to get a formal ultrasound or get to a, a real hospital, I elected to just kind of watch him and, and, and recheck him in the morning. And he ended up being fine, never had uh, acute cholecystitis. So, you know, I was comfortable with that decision based on, on my ultrasound um, exam. Um, another case was a climber that was brought in, uh, very sick, that actually had a, a PEA arrest, cardiac arrest, um, and was hypoxic. And this is at 14,000 feet, mind you. So we saw a lot of altitude illness. Um, you know, the, the leading diagnosis was that she had HAPE, high altitude pulmonary edema. Um, she was hypoxic in respiratory distress and had a PEA arrest. Um, we threw the ultrasound probe on her and did what we call a rush exam, where we look at the heart, the lungs, the IVC. Um, and she had a full uh, IVC and had right heart strain and had totally clear lungs, so no sonographic beelines, which is what you would see in, in high altitude pulmonary edema. So we decided that she likely did not have HAPE um, and uh, we evacuated her and you know we treated her as best we could supportively. And she got flown to Kathmandu two days later and ended up having massive uh, pulmonary emboli. Um, so we were kind of able to guide our, our clinical management um, off that ultrasound study. So those are two kind of two, two examples of how you know you can use ultrasound to guide your clinical management when you don't have many resources. So in this segment, we've talked about the history of ultrasound. Um, we've talked about some device considerations. So if you were to bring an ultrasound into the wilderness, um, and we've also talked about clinical applications in either wilderness expedition or rural clinic settings. We're getting towards the end of our time. Um, and I'm wondering uh, for both of you, do you have any last minute thoughts you wanna leave the listeners with about ultrasound and austere settings? So I, I think the, the big thing that I think about where we're sitting uh, kind of as a medical community with ultrasound right now, I think has a lot of parallels to where we were with the outdoor community in GPS uh, you know, 20, 25 years ago, where 
once we sort of get over the technological hurdles and worrying about battery life and, and screen monitors and memory and all that sort of things, I think this really is going to become sort of a standard of care for more formal backcountry medicine. Um, and I think the more people can get accustomed to it now, uh, that transition is going to be easier for providers that will be working with this in the future. I think that's about all the time we have for this segment, uh, but I just wanted to say thank you both so much, Dr. Storr and Dr. Weinberg, uh, for being with us and sharing your thoughts on ultrasound in the wilderness. Thank you.